On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Marillion's misplaced childhood. A group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory, Paul Zotter, and Tom Corcoran as we cover Marillion's Misplaced Childhood. So I, I guess we should make our, our public service announcement that three quarters of the palaver tonight apparently are in less than stellar moods. So we're not exactly sure what we're going to get here. But here we are as we consider misplaced childhood. There's a lot going on here, a lot to talk about. And before we got on air, Ken kind of, he he, he tapped into something that I was thinking as well, and and that is what exactly is a concept album, and specifically with regards to misplaced childhood, what is the concept? There we go. I, I think in, in some regards it's a little tenuous. So um, I, I couldn't help myself, and I went and tried to do some research, if I can find it. Hmm. So if, if you just go onto the interwebs and look for a concept album, you will actually get a, tr- a definition. Um, concept album is a noun, a rock album featuring a cycle of songs expressing a particular theme or idea. Pretty, pretty standard, pretty straightforward. If you go to Wikipedia, you will get the following description. A concept album is an album whose tracks hold a larger purpose or meaning collectively than they do individually. This is typically achieved through a single central narrative or theme, which can be instrumental, compositional, or lyrical. Sometimes the term is applied to albums considered to be of, quote, uniform excellence, rather than an LP with an explicit musical or lyrical motif. There is no consensus among music critics as to the specific criteria for what a, quote, concept album is. The format originates with folk singer Woody Guthrie's Dust Bowl Ballads, 1940, and was subsequently popularized by traditional pop singer Frank Sinatra's 1940s-50s string of albums, although the term is more often associated with rock music. In the 1960s, several well-regarded concept albums were released by various rock bands, which eventually led to the invention of progressive rock and rock rock opera. Since then, many concept albums have been released across numerous musical genres. That actually leads me to another thing that I I probably should have said even first, but now is as good a time as any. It's important for me to make the following statement to our listeners. Recently, I have come across a another podcast that I've been listening to that is completely unrelated and, and the subject matter is not at all important to this discussion. However, the hosts of that podcast, while very engaged in what they're doing and very actively dissecting and considering the subject matter, at times come across almost aggressively hostile towards the, uh, the creator of the work that they're considering. 
And I know that it's easy in some regards on a podcast to focus on what we don't like, what annoys us, what doesn't fit, what doesn't work. And I want to be perfectly clear, especially going into this episode, at least where my brain is, to all of our listeners that I think, and and I'll speak for myself, but I assume I speak for the palaver as a whole, I want to be very clear that we generally hold all the artists that we have talked about in extremely high regard. And and even if we have problems with certain things, we do this and we talk about the albums we talk about and the artists we talk about because we admire and adore them. So yeah, yeah. I don't want anyone to think that we're, we're being negative Nancys or that we don't like anything. Um, you know, that, that we talk about. I mean, there are a few cases where we don't like something explicitly, um, you know, and I think that's usually pretty obvious, but as a whole, I just wanted to sort of put that on the table. <laughs> I think I, I, I agree. I also think it's, it's, it's good that we decided to edit out that uh, Roger Waters rant from the, the one episode. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't think that really reflected you know what we yeah. want to do. It was that's why we want to take him out to dinner because you know we would. It's like you know, it's like it's like us. We're all we're old friends. We hold each other accountable, and then you know, and then we buy each other drinks. I already owe Tom a drink. I hear the audio freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, we may have to redo this in whole entire episode, but that's a whole other thing altogether. <laughs> we'll deal with that later. <laughs> So, so, and, and the reason for this very first part is as I was listening to this and I was thinking back to the ranking episode where we did and we ranked the, the Marillion top 10 albums and I was given some shit about where I put this versus some of the other albums. And, you know, I, and I was thinking about that and, and, and I'll tell my story again about how I got into this and, and why I love this album. And I want to make it very clear that I actually do love this album. I think it's absolutely spectacular. But the more I listen to it, the more I'm like, and I was, I was asking myself, I'm like, what is the concept here? Because it's, it's kind of shaky in terms of a, of a narrative story and, and what's trying to come across. So, um, mm. but eh, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. So what's funny is that the more I listen to this record, the more I am convinced it is it is the crowning achievement of fish and and possibly even Marillion. I, I the more I listen to it, the more and more I love it. And you know, similar to like, you know, some of the other albums that we've that we've listened to where I you know, like I kind of dive back in after a long time and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just this album is getting better and better. I mean, that happened a lot with with Pink Floyd. And and for me, the thing that's crazy about the concept is it's perfect because you, you you can't really tell a story here. And if you do, it's most likely going to be different than someone else's version of the story that they hear. You know, and I, you know, I spent some extra time thinking about it, not as much, you know, research trying to find the answers, but just some time thinking about all of these topics. And and like the best thing I could come up with is like this concept of like, you know, we talk about, you know, if you're, if you're someone who has spent a lot of time in therapy, like I have, 
like you end up, whether you want to or not, you end up sort of re re-examining so many aspects of your life to look for a little hit, hidden secrets as to why you are the way you are or why you react to certain ways. And maybe people are fortunate enough to do that on their own without going to therapy. But that's what, when I listen to this, that's almost what I, what I feel like. It's this sort of almost stream of consciousness of relationships and interpersonal things and things that, you know, you know, similar to the way that when we talked about the wall, there were all these different things that were kind of contributing to this one main story. This doesn't really have a story, but it is, I feel like there is a theme that is that interwoven of, you know, relationships and self loathing and, and, um, and just loss, whatever loss that is experienced um, at, from youth to adulthood. And, and it's, it's so powerful in so many different ways that every time I listen to it, it just like it keeps getting better and better in my brain. It's interesting because misplaced childhood uh, and almost, uh, I'm not comparing it to the wall, but I, I just, uh, in, in this specific instance, misplaced childhood in the wall um, are about, um, a lot of it is about um, personal experiences and about um, themselves, not the entire bit, but a, a lot of it anyway. I found that it was interesting that misplaced childhood, if you take a lot of bands, maybe not even prog, but just a, a lot of bands that we might like, a lot of the, the first couple albums are sort of the self-indulgent, um, about me, 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 I, 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 about love I lost or, you know, something about your, your angst or how you're feeling. And it's all about the singer, really, um, as far as lyrics go. I find that it was like the opposite with Marillion, where their first two albums, there's stories about war and uh, other people, you know, third, third parties. Um, and there was, a, I found a certain depth to that, um, being that they were a very young band. Well, they still are at this point, but um, a, a younger band um, talking about uh, profound worldly themes. And this is sort of getting into just more of the, this is more like rock and roll. This is about like love lost. Um, this was from an LSD trip that Fish had, and it sort of inspired him to 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 write this after he, um, you know, broke up with his his girlfriend of the same name, at least Kay. And it seemed like this would normally be an album like this would come first, <laughs> and then I'm not talking about musically. I'm just talking about um, lyrically, and it, it would be flipped. Also, although the lyrics on this album are superb, I mean, there is a certain bite and a depth to the, the first two albums that sort of don't make it sound so freshman and sophomore, those, those two albums. There's, there's a, and again, one isn't better than the other, but I find that there's a certain depth to some of the earlier stuff. Um, and there is... Uh, this is a marvelous album and I know we need to 
um, uh, talk about my my problems with it. I know I know Joe's dying to uh, get into that. <laughs> well, um, all in good time. But yes, yes, I am very okay. keen. So I won't I won't really get into that. But I want to stick to what you guys were talking about, and that is well, I don't even know what you're talking. About. I, I was I was I was ranting. But anyway, um, there this album is sort of more more typical rock and then the the subject matter rather is more um something that we would hear outside of Prague. and so your 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 question guys about is this um you know concept album or not is is definitely an interesting one and is definitely one that you know should be brought up with this album because like you mentioned joe um i i have this i have some of the same questions Cool. Wow. So maybe before okay, I just get- I just I just want to clarify. So I'm not sure if Tom just called me a simple simpleton rock fan, or or if he if he insinuated that that misplaced childhood is basically like Merlion's sophomore album. It, it, am, am I mistaking what you're saying, Tom, or is that is no. that? Um. No. Um, okay. I, I, All right. Good. Uh, no. I had that had nothing to do with with that at all. Uh, all I, right. I I just found it odd. I, I just found it interesting that the subject matter for this was when I say you know typical rock. I'm I'm talking about anything outside of Prague, and it has nothing to do with what you had, had said. Okay. But I just I just found it that this I would think that this would be the subject of one of their earlier albums, and that doesn't make it better or worse. But when you so it's more is it because it's more accessible, less proggy. Well, it's because it's more personal, and okay. I think a lot of prog. I mean, got it. Is, I, is about you know other other people and stories, and I yep. mean, look at all the stuff that Genesis writes about there. I mean, it, it's it's about um, it's 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 really um, more more profound storytelling. Yeah. And, but that's it. I gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Makes sense. So before we get too far into this, perhaps, Ken, we should look at some of the the progressive rock context in 1985. I'd be delighted to, Joe. Um, it, it fascinates me that this came out in June of 1985 um, because something interesting came out a month later. We'll get to that. Fugazi, 1984, March. What could be brewing in between these two albums? Well, we've got King Crimson, Three of a Pair, David Gilmore, About Face, Rush, Grace Under Pressure, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking, uh, Queensryche's The Warning, uh, Zap is Active, we've got uh, Mike Oldfield, you know, some other folks. But as you know from previous episodes, the 80s are a bit sparse. Um, we're going to count uh, Tears for Fear, Songs from the Big Chair, because we love them so much. Uh, Super Tramp, Brother, Where You Bound. And then uh, June 1985, really in Misplaced Childhood. So as you mentioned, Ken, it was released in uh, June of 1985. It was uh, produced by Chris Kimsey and released on the label EMI. I think we may want to take a little side journey into Chris Kimsey's um, CV just a little bit if we want. 
personnel include Fish on uh, vocals and cover concept, Steve Rothery on guitars, additional bass guitar, Mark Kelly on keyboards, Petro Alvis on bass guitar, and Ian Mosley on drums and percussion. The track listing, side one, consists of Pseudo Silk Kimono, Kaylee, Lavender, Bittersweet, Encompassing Brief Encounter, Lost Weekend, Blue Angel, Misplaced Rendezvous, and Windswept Thumb, and Heart of Lothian, comprising Wide Boy and Curtain Call. Side two is Waterhole, Expresso Bongo, Lords of the Backstage, Blind Curve, comprising Vocal Under a Bloodlight, Passing Strangers, Milo, Perimeter Walk, and Threshold, and finishing out with Childhood's End and White Feather. Misplaced Childhood is the third studio album by the British neo-progressive rock band Marillion, released in 1985. It is a concept album loosely based on the childhood of Marillion's lead singer Fish, who was inspired by a brief incident that occurred while he was under the influence of acid. The album was recorded during the spring of 1985 at Hansa Ton Studio in Berlin and produced by Chris Kimsey, who had previously worked with the Rolling Stones. Misplaced Childhood is the group's most commercially successful album to date, peaking immediately at number one in the UK charts and spending a total of 41 weeks on the chart. It ultimately gained the platinum status. It features Marillion's two most successful singles, the guitar-led rock ballad Kaylee, which reached number two in the UK, and piano-led Lavender, which peaked at number five. Misplaced Childhood was listed as the sixth best album of 1985 by Kerrang! and chosen as the fourth greatest concept album of all time by Classic Rock in 2003. Did any of you gentlemen happen to look at that 2003 list of classic of concept albums? No, but no. I'm, I'm interested to, to would, hear Would you that. like to hear that list? I, I, I would. <laughs> you are positively going to be giddy, Tom. Number 30, and I'll just run through this very quickly. Number 30, Iron Maiden, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. Number 29, Spock's Beard with Snow. Number 28, Sticks, Kilroy was here. 27, <laughs> Gentle Giant, Three Friends. 26, Fear Factory, Obsolete. 25, Rick Wakeman, Journey to the Center of the Earth. 24, Roger Waters, Radio Chaos. 23, Marillion, Brave. 22, The Pretty Things with SF Sorrow. 21, Pink Floyd, The Final Cut. 20, Frank Zappa, Joe's Garage, Act 1. 19, Rush, Hemispheres. 18, The Kinks. The Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society. 17, Radiohead, OK Computer. 16, The Alan Parsons Project, Tales of Mystery and Imagination. 15, Dream Theater, Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from a Memory. 14, Genesis, Duke. 13, Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral. 12, The Who, Quadrophenia. 11, Jethro Tull, Thick as a Brick. 10, Pink Floyd, The Wall. 9. Rush, 2112. 8. David Bowie, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. 7. Yes, Tales from Topographic Oceans. 6. Genesis, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. 
Five, Marilyn Manson, Antichrist Superstar. Oh my God. Four, Marillion Misplaced Childhood. Three, The Who, Tommy. Number two, Queensryche, Operation Mind Crime. Any guesses to number one? Judas Priest, Nostradamus. <laughs> <laughs> I believe Nostradamus came out after 2003, did it not? Oh, uh, yes, it did. Pink Floyd, The Dark Side of the Moon. Oh. So I thought that was uh, that was a very interesting aside. Wait, um, and, and Misplaced Childhood was ranked number four on that list? That's correct. Yes. Uh, listen. We, we need to invite this person on the show who wrote that. <laughs> there are some really suspect items on that list, but okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't even know where to begin. There's, there's too many. I, it, I just, you know, I see a reference like that, and I have to go look it up. I was fascinated. And obviously, it's not for us to get into whether that list is right, wrong, or indifferent. I was just, I was tickled pink when I saw Seventh Son of a Seventh Son there. I thought having Mind Crime all the way up at number two was just a pure joy. You know, revel in, in the, the good parts and don't worry about the things that drive you crazy. Yeah. And, and just chuckle the fact that Kilroy was here actually made the list, let alone outshined the other Sticks albums that are head and shoulders above. Are so, most of Sticks albums concept albums? So we, well, we that goes back to the top of the show where we define what is a concept album. I would right. say that, yes, several of the Sticks albums are concept albums, even if they're not stories. Yeah, there's there's a whole whole big thing there. It, very quickly, um, I, I just want to talk Chris Kimsey for a, a minute. Yeah, for sure. So if you look at his Wikipedia page, it's freaking monster, right? Absolutely monster. He's got two different lists. One's where he served as a producer, co-producer, or associate producer, and the other one where he was a mix engineer. So... You know, we already mentioned the Rolling Stones, where he did a handful of records for them. Um, Peter Tosh, The Cult, um, Killing Joke, which which um, was immediately preceding Misplaced Childhood. Um, he worked on Duran Duran, which is interesting. Wow. He worked, obviously, most um, famously for us here on The Palaver after this, on Fish's Internal Exile and Yin. Wow. He did um, Kurt Smith, Billy Squire. He was involved with one of the Yes compilations, which I find to be a little bit interesting. So, yeah, I mean, he's, he's kind of all over the place. But when you look in his, if you go in, and then expand that out to his, his mix engineer, um, you know, again, with, with the Rolling Stones, um, Spooky Tooth, Bad Company, Fish Again, Pretty much the same, the same bit, except you do get to add in um, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer brain salad surgery, which is like total prog cred. Mm. Joe, there was one where he mixed, engineered, and had production credits on Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe. Um, yeah, right. Which and brother of mine was one of them, and I think there are some eerily similar production notes on brother of mine and misplaced childhood. And and we'll and and I think we'll talk more about his his influence as a producer when we get to internal exile as well. And mm. I have I have a general theory about that. Okay. So well, it was a it was a a breath of fresh air as far as I'm concerned 
in the Marillion progression of, of album production to have Chris Kimsey full on board taking the reins for, for misplaced childhood. And so in, in, I guess there's, there's a fantastic feature in, I guess, I think it's Prague magazine, Paul, I don't know if this is part of one of the things that you have received or not. There, there's a pretty extensive write-up on the making of Misplaced Childhood that's that's <sighs> really quite well done. Huh. And and they talk about you know when they when they relocated to or located themselves in Berlin to start recording, and you know there were some peculiarities. I guess something had happened when Killing Joke was there, and the the board was a little jacked up, and and there there are some tales about how. You know, they tried to mix Kaylee in in Abbey Road, and it was terrible. And 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 Chris was back in Berlin figuring out how to fix it, and insisted then that the entire album be mixed in Berlin. Uh, just it, it's it's fascinating stuff. And one of the things that sort of leapt out at me in terms of the the background, uh, maybe above and beyond some of the uh, the origins of the of the lyrical story as Tom alluded to when fish was was tripping on acid is uh, I guess the there 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 were some issues with um, with the equipment and so one of the guys in the Chris Kimsey camp I guess impressed everyone by somehow conjuring up a Busendorfer piano and mm. so when I when I first saw that little little radars went off in my head, and and of course the most obvious person that I know of who is intimately associated with Busendorfer pianos is Tori Amos. So mm. it was kind of fascinating to think that you know we're hearing the same um, the same sort of piano on Misplaced Childhood as we hear on all of the lovely work that uh, that Tori does. I just thought that was you know it's one of those little odd things that kind of made me excited. That's cool. There are other people who are associated with uh, Busendorfers. Um, you know, if you go to their website, it's act, they've got a huge list of, of performers and friends. I'm not quite sure what the difference is, but when you see names like Bill Gates, my guess is there's check writing involved. Um, but, hmm. but I did pick out a couple. So Tori Amos is the most obvious. Peter Gabriel's name shows up on that list. Billy Joel shows up. Vangelis shows up, Paul McCartney shows up, and in honor of my father, um, I will mention, and he has nothing at all to do with the the progressive palaver, Roger Whitaker's name shows up on that list. <laughs> my dad was a huge, huge Roger Whitaker fan, so oh, I, I was tickled pink by that as well. So misplaced childhood. You know, I told this story, I believe I told the story, I haven't gone back and listened to it, but I can only imagine that I did. But I, I believe I told the story in episode one. And for those of you who have not bothered to listen to episode one, and I don't blame you if you have not, um, I will tell it again. And if you have already heard the story a long time ago, then you can just hit your fast forward button. So misplaced childhood. I, I want to say that I saw the Kaylee video once on MTV and was fixated for none, no reason other than when that video opens up, there's <laughs> right next to, to Rothery, 
is the little tray of Boss effects pedals that I knew so well <laughs> from from watching you guys. And I was just like, that's the same shit my friends have. This is cool. <laughs> These guys must be awesome, right? <laughs> It, it's it's from these these simple little naive juvenile thoughts that great things come. But seeing that video was it. That was that was all that I did. Um, didn't really think anything of it. Now at this time, so we're in in 1985. My brother has um, has gone off to college. He's he's in Texas. He comes back. Um, for the summers, and at some point, he procured misplaced childhood, and I could not tell you for the life of me how he procured it. And I saw it and made some mention of it, and I remember this vividly. He kind of poo-pooed it, and he said, "No, no, you wouldn't like that album." <laughs> <laughs> and and it was just like, oh, I guess I wouldn't like that album, but it. <laughs> It wouldn't leave my brain. Like it was just, it was in there and it was just working its way in. And all I'd ever heard was, was Kaylee. And so at this point, when I start going to the University of Delaware and on Main Street in Newark, there was a most spectacular record store. May still be there. Don't know. I haven't been in Newark in a long time. That was called Rainbow Records. And it was a it was just a lovely way to spend some time in the afternoon or whatever after your classes to walk into Rainbow Records. And it was just, it was a wash with all sorts of cool stuff. And I, for probably the better part of a year or two, I, I would go in and I would look at the Marillion section. I never bought anything. And I became, you know, and again, I, it's so embarrassing, the stupid things that I would fixate on it and for the dumbest reasons. I became fixated on La Gaza Ladra, the mm -hmm. live album that came out after Clutching at Straws, because it, it came, it was a double set, but it came as two separate CD cases, if you recall. Back in, in those days, the early 90s, double CDs came in the big, fat, double jewel case. But La Gaza right. Ladra was in two completely separate single jewel cases. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty fucking cool. And it was sometime, it, and I remember it would have had to have been in the spring of our sophomore year. So that would have been, what, 89, 90, I guess? Yeah. 1990. And I remember this because I started out my sophomore year in a double and my roommate moved out. So I spent the second half, the spring semester of my sophomore year in this very spacious room all by myself. And one day in that spring semester, I was coming back from class and I went to Rainbow Records and I pulled the trigger. I don't know what else I bought, but I bought Misplaced Childhood. My brother be damned, for whatever reason, I couldn't take it anymore. And I don't know if they didn't have the other records or what, but I, I remember I, I bought it. And I walked back to my dorm room, and I can, I can picture it clear as day, because it was a beautiful, sunny afternoon. And I, when the way my room was set up, my stereo was like right next to the door, so I could sit in the stereo 
like by the stereo on the floor and I could sort of look up and see out the window. And I remember being bathed in this absolutely perfect mid-afternoon light as I pressed play on the CD player <laughs> and the synth strains of Pseudosil Kimono came on. And I was just like, what is this? And much like a pseudo-silk kimono, it just wrapped itself around me in this most glorious of feelings. And obviously at this point, we all know that musically, you know, this album just flows seamlessly. And, you know, before I knew it, I was, you know, 30, 40 minutes into this thing. And, you know, the the deeper it got in, you know, there were these turns and there was just, I, I was just like, why did my brother deny me of this for so long? <laughs> because this is absolutely wonderful. And that was it. At that point, I was freaking sold on Marillion. Wow. Was it, was it Len that did that to you? It was Dave. It was Dave. How dare him? You could argue that he maybe did you a favor because he he delayed your exposure until that perfect moment when you were when you were totally ready. He maybe he did. I mean, it it was, it, you know, we my bad memory is, you know, it's well known here on the palaver, hmm. but that is something I will I hope I will never ever forget. And and again, it is clear as you know what I had for dinner in my mind right now as I'm talking about it. And and that was something, you know, it, it, you get in this period, you know, where you get jaded and, and certainly hosting a podcast and trying to be critical and, and looking for narratives and, you know, and, and when we did that, that ranking episode, I was, I was bagging a little bit on misplaced childhood. And I, as I, as I got into it very specifically this time, for this episode right now, the last two weeks or whatever, I purposefully tried to get back into that mindset of that I had that day and sort of recapture that magic. And I was thrilled to see that I can still feel that. Mm. And so, you know, even, even if, you know, and I'll point out some issues with that I have with, you know, the narrative or, or anything else, but I think, you know, musically, this is an absolute just gem and and I love everywhere it takes me and one of the things that I find so amazing about it is when you look at this now with the with the benefit of the full spectrum of Marillion and certainly as it applies to to Rothery most specifically there are there are things here that speak to the first two albums and there are things that you can say, oh, well, that shows up on every album since. It's almost like this is, and I think, Paul, you made mention of it, this is fully formed Marillion. This is all the building blocks of Marillion that you basically need. You can add on some, some accoutrements here and there, but musically, it's all right here, mm. right now, and it's beautiful. I, I liked hearing your, your your story, Joe. For some reason, I did. This is the first time I I heard that story. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. But I find it interesting because even though my um, history with this album is a bit different than yours, 
what I find interesting about that is because I was thinking about how I was introduced to Marillion and it was, I, I was actually, I worked at wall to wall sound and video in Montgomery mall. And um, I would put all the CDs away and albums away. And I just remember putting away Marillion albums and, and CDs and seeing like these covers I'm like, God, these are like the most awesome covers I've ever seen. <laughs> like these, they're so descriptive and colorful and creative and they tell a story. I'm like staring at these things where I'm putting them away. I'm like, I can literally like tell a whole story of, with, with, with a lot of these. Um, but I guess just being the, um, you know, superficial person that I've always, <laughs> that I, I tend to be, I, I sort of like, I saw what they looked like, and I was like, oh, these guys are dorks. They probably would like them. They didn't fit the, you know, the hard rock, you know, uh, you know, ideal that I was sort of, you know, in, in myself. And I was like, all right, these guys can't be that good. Um, and what, what, what I did was when I, my first year at Berkeley, I, I bought – uh, I think I bought it like prior, but I just, I hadn't really listened to it. I hadn't really gotten my, sunk my teeth in it, but I, I, I had script and, and Fugazi. And I remember um, it was, it was in one of the, it was in one of the, the weekend trips going home. I would take the, um, I would take the train. I'd take the, the Ben Franklin train from Boston to uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I, I popped in Marillion and it was like on that, on that trip that I was just like, Oh, I get it. I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. And I just was, um, really finally, it just, it, I guess it took, I, I, you know, I, I had several unsuccessful attempts, but I just, I needed the solitude of being on a, uh, a train by myself with a, with a, with a Walkman on, um, to, to really take the time I needed. But that was the time I really, um, sort of found my my place in the Marillion world, but I it, it's interesting. I think everyone's story may have to do at some point with seeing the album covers and with like what how they reacted to those album covers because those are unique. These are those are unique beyond anything that you know we had really been used to seeing there's a lot of cool album covers that we can talk about and whatnot but there was a definite style to to these and it was a real visceral style and uh it was i th i think that everyone sort of sees these and has some sort of story with them close to everyone <laughs> <laughs> joe you copied this from that cd to cassette, and it was part of one of my birthday presents. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice of me to share the wealth. Yes, yes, you got me hooked. Um, <laughs> although, without the artwork, I wasn't maybe as hooked as everyone else. I, I was probably miss missing some critical information there. Well, and it's, you know, it's funny when you talk about the artwork, Tom, because, you know, it, and, and again, by 1990, Fish had already been gone. And we didn't even know it. And 
you know, my guess is, as I sit here and think about it, Rainbow Records probably had, they probably only had Misplaced Childhood and La Gaza Ladra maybe, maybe clutching at straws. And actually, now that I think about it, um, Marie DeWitt had a cassette of clutching at straws that I started listening to after I discovered Misplaced Childhood. But anyway, I remember, again, there was, you know, remember when we used to go to the mall and, and there was like some sort of show where the guys would set up the tables in the middle and they were selling posters and it was, I believe it was at the mall. Maybe it was at one of the record shows we used to go to, irrespective. I saw the, and I probably purchased the poster for Script for Jester's Tear, even before I knew what the hell it was. But that image is why to this day, I'm still, wow. you know, irrationally fixated on that album more than Fugazi. Well, my journey without the artwork was still very re rewarding. I still love the first four tracks that holds true today. Um, I think I get lost somewhere in the later half of the album. And that's uh, mm. maybe something that we can cover here in the Palaver. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I think I think that, you know, that those first four certainly... Uh, you know, like I said, I remember listening to that the first time and just being, uh, my mind was literally just melting out of my head because it just kept getting better and better and better. <laughs> I would like to introduce the Neo Prague victory lap. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> if, if you were Yes or Genesis or, I'm sorry, what are the big three? Oh, Rush would be in there too. Um, you know, you have to earn your halftime section. You have to play a million notes. You have to make the audience feel like they're on a roller coaster. You have to do all your little flips and turns, go wild, and then you can play your slow halftime victory lap. We're Marillion, damn it. We'll take a victory lap whenever we damn well please, whether or not we played something fast or not. Fuck you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean they they did, you know, they 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 did reinterpret some of the prog rock tropes, right? Which was cool. Yes. yes. Yeah, I'm going to call it an unearned run. <laughs> nah. For for comparing uh really to some of the other bands that that we've talked about, I I've, I've also found it interesting that um with Rush Caress of Steel was their second album. It didn't do too well. And then 2112 was sort of their savior. And of course, it was a, it was a big album. Um, and it was sort of a, a non-commercial album that you, you wouldn't think that would save someone's career. Uh, Mark Kelly is, is quoted, and I, I'll... I'll read it, but uh, actually, I can just remember. I can just remember it. Mark Kelly's quoted as, as saying that misplaced childhood saved their career, and I find it interesting because Fugazi, oh, it, what it didn't do as well as script. It didn't like totally tank, but it cost like double to make. It cost like twice as much money to make, and the record company wasn't wasn't happy at all, and so they wanted them to make 
a, a big they, they want them to have a hit and, and make a bigger album and what do they do they say oh let's do a concept album <laughs> and it just cracks me up that when a band is in dire straits and the record label again says listen you guys have to come with a hit you know they're all just thinking about like creatively what they want to do and they come up with a concept album <laughs> and that it sort of you know saves their asses in sort of a a very unorthodox way so um, that I, I found interesting how it paralleled yeah um, aspects of rush what, what what's cool about misplaced childhood is like some of those comparisons right tom that you just said like 2112 caress of steel hemispheres to some degree you know, their whole album side and they're, you know, there are like three or four specific songs, really. You know, maybe some with different parts, but they but they chunk out in songs. And even though they all span together, they're not really necessarily connected musically. And in, and in some cases, I would say Russia is very guilty of, a, of 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 being a little too riff oriented, like Hemisphere is if you can say one thing about hemispheres is that there's just so much repetition uh, in that, in that um, album side, um, even though it's like one of my favorite things of all time. Right. But the thing that's a crazy about misplaced childhood is that these are really different songs, right? They're different bits of songs that, that could completely be standalone. And yet they've, They've really just done a masterful job of connecting it all through, through music, connecting the pieces together, and that was the thing that caught caught my attention immediately was the transition into Kaylee, and then I was like, okay, and then the transition to Lavender wasn't quite as epic as Kaylee, but it was still like okay, and Bittersweet was a little bit of a stretch, mm -hmm. but then you know from there on it just. It amazes me as to as to how this flows, and and the connective tissue that that brings it all together. Especially when the concept or themes itself is so stream of consciousness, it's kind of all over. It's almost like in this situation, the music binds it together, maybe even more so than than the lyrics or the or the thematic story that's rolling through. Yeah, and, and that's why I I specifically called out you know, the, the music of this, because it, it, it is, and, and, you know, we made, I made mention in the ranking out, uh, ranking episode, you know, about how sometimes lyrically I get thrown off my groove. And while that's still the case, and I, I've been able to sort of pinpoint some of those, those places, uh, musically, I don't even care because if, if I, if it bothers me, I just focus on the music and it carries me right through and I don't mm. even, it doesn't bother me at all. So do yeah. we want to go through this track by track or just kind of hit the highlights? Because I, I don't, I've got some notes. I don't know how that really works, but I'm just really keen to hear Tom explain why he hates Kaylee so much. Oh, I just wanted to agree with you, Joe. That, oh. Um, <laughs> wait, what was your point? I think I agree with you. That even if I get thrown off my groove lyrically, the music will just carry me right through okay and yeah i agree and to that i would say it makes me wonder if the, the the four members of the band even at that point knew what fish was saying i think they just said this is going to be a very contiguous album lyrics be damned 
Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and if they all met in the middle and created something mutual, that's great. But there was a clear directive on this. Uh, you know, no doubt Mark Kelly was seemed to be driving force here where everything really does connect. One of, one of the things that we haven't, and I can't remember, maybe we did talk about it in the Fugazi episode. Now that we have, have, you know, Mosley, you know, in the band and everything else is, is this sort of, you know, is this album a, a, a big step in the gelling of the Marillion rhythm section? Because it seems to me that, you know, Pete and, and Ian, I, and maybe I'm being totally stupid here, but it seems to me like they've kind of figured each other out and they're in perfect synchronization at this point. And they'll stay there for the next 35 years. Is this album maybe the least Pete? Like, do you think he chilled out a little bit from the prior albums to to, to do that? You know, bonding with Ian? Well, I mean, I, I I keep in mind, you know, he only had Fugazi, right? Because up before then, they were doing their Spinal Tap drummer routine. Right, right, right. So, so, right. so Pete didn't have anyone to sort of quote bond with. Yeah, I I feel like that's an interesting point, Ken. I'm not sure in my mind. I'm thinking Pete does exactly what he needs to do, and maybe just a little bit more. Um, but it's so tasty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, I, but I do think that overall, I, I mean, you know, you said it, this is the turning point and, and Tom, I don't know if this kind of helps your, your case around, you know, this, well, I mean, it, maybe it's not so personal, but there really is something about this album that the sound like Stephen Rothery, this is his sound for the rest of his career. Like you can hear these sounds on, on misplaced childhood. You can hear them on fear. And these are like, he has come into his own Ian, you know, whether he had anything to do with it or not, like the, the drums finally sound good and tight and they're, they're crisp. And I agree with you, Joe, they're, they're locked in. I mean, everybody is just in the zone. Everybody has hit their peak. And, you know, I mean, Jesus, the lyrics on this album, I can't wait to hear what you guys think. I mean, I just think they are just masterful. And um, even as I'm reading through them tonight to prepare, and I'm thinking, oh, I didn't realize that's what the lyric was. Wow, that's so much better than what I've been singing for the last, like, 30 years. That's amazing. <laughs> um, it, but there's, there, there is just something about this moment where the band has come together and, and they really have formulated where they will be musically. And, and I, there's, it's no small feat. And I think that it, it might even be for me, what catapults this beyond, um, you know, beyond clutching at straws for, you know, personally, I know that um, most people think clutching at straws is the superior record, but the more, the more time goes on, the more I'm convinced this one is. I mean, I don't know what we're going to do, but you know, Joe, you said to go through the highlights or go track by track. I mean, for me, it's about the same, you know, if we go through the highlights, uh, it might be track for track, but 
you know, like safe in my own words, learning from my own. This lyric here says my own worlds. Is yep. that correct? Yep. Cruel joke, cruel joke. Whether I always thought it was safe in my own words, learning from my own words, cruel joke, cruel joke. But whether it's words or worlds, it's fucking great. And the and the irony there is just. It, I mean, it is. It's a cruel joke. You know, I fucking love it. And, and, and I, I, you know, that that's a really really good point. And and it sounds like why don't we just try to blast through the uh, the tracks if we can. Fish in this album takes a significant step in in a couple of different ways. His vocal delivery is a lot less manic. Um, he's he's starting to learn how to sing, I think. Um, and his lyrics, while still very, very poignant and very, very um, uh, artistic, are not quite as athletic as they were. It, think of it as, you know, you Ken, you were talking about the victory lap, right? Um, Rick Wakeman plays a lot of notes. I think... Mm. Does he ever? I, I think Fish used to want to sing a lot of syllables. Garden and, and, Party. And he was very, he was very show-offy about how good his lyrics were. And now I think he's he's a little bit more comfortable in the role, perhaps. And he's, you know, he seems to be delivering in a more understated way. I I agree with you, Paul. They're still spectacular. Um, but it's not quite as overtly, you know, spectacular as, as it maybe had been. Yeah. Yeah. So pseudo silk kimono. I mean, what do you, what do you have to say about this? I mean, I already kind of gushed all over it, so I'm going to yeah. shut up. Safe. It just in needs to century. be there. I always thought that was safe in the century. But it's actually, I guess, safe in the sanctuary, which actually makes a lot more sense and is better. But <laughs> I never understood wearing bracelets of smoke naked of understanding, but I thought it was beautiful. Um, it starts very early. I just don't understand it. You know, my expectation, you know, came three or four years earlier and it's the wall and Roger Waters died and we know it because he tells us six different ways and this we have to just guess at what the story is. Yeah. Can we call it neo-prog ambiguity? And, and, and it, yeah. is, it is am ambiguous, right? But again, for me in that first moment, that was the beauty of it because it, it started my brain thinking. It's like, what's he saying? What am I supposed to be getting out of this? And so I was actually engaged with it from the beginning. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And for me, you know, I just picture, you know, huddled, huddled in the corner, smoking cigarette in the dark with smoke all around me. Right. And then he gets to the line to this orphan of heartbreak, disillusioned and scorned. So he says, the spirit of a misplaced childhood is rising to speak his mind. To this orphan of heartbreak, disillusioned and scorned, a refugee, a refugee, right? He's basically saying that, like, 
he's having a conversation with himself, right? His, he's finally going to work out the shit of his life with himself, right? And, and it, that's why the safe in the sanctuary it just makes so much sense because, you know, he's sitting there about to engage himself in a completely, his own space, his own acid trip, whatever it is. And then it just fucking launches into everything right from there. Ah, it's so fucking good. And, and it's, it's interesting, right, that, you know, that's how it's described in, in this article about, you know, when he, he came home from Rothery's house and the acid was kicking in, you know, he, he was sitting in a corner with a notepad kind of saying, all right, let's use this. But what I find very, very funny, and we'll get to this more next episode as well, I mean, Fish was 25, 6, 7 at this point. I mean, just the... And, and that's one of the things that sort of gets me about Fish in this era as I get older. I find I'm much less inclined to to indulge in, in his his wallowing. I mean, there there's a line... In 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 uh, clutching at straws, you know something about staring down thirty, and it's like, oh, the end of the world. <laughs> you know, I mean, give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and and we're gonna get to that in in the next track as well. But I'm I'm still very much on board, and and I do, you know, he's describing, you know, I apparently the situation under which this this narrative began. Well, let's talk about the next track. Let's talk about the next track. Tom, why do you hate Kaylee? All right. Um, <laughs> let's, let's get this over with. Um, no. Um, first of all, Pseudo Sokimono, I, I love. Uh, it was years where I would try to... All right, so I, I, I've had problems with this album um, in, in the past, and I came to the realization that it stemmed from Kaylee, that the problems that I had with this album, whenever I would sort of try to give it, like wipe the slate clean and give it another try, I would put it in. I would love Pseudo Sokimono. I'd be like, okay, great. And Kaylee... The verses are are, are, are are great actually, but uh, the the chorus it, it really when I had said this in the original episode about you know I think that you know this album has hints of you know second rate Phil Collins you know <laughs> melodies I'm really talking about Kaylee and I was I definitely uh, misspoke. And was was very wrong about the album in general, but the problem that I had with it was that Kaylee sort of, even though you know Sudo Kimono starts it off, it's a very short, you know, song, and really Kaylee is the beginning of the story, the breakup with his girlfriend, and being that this is a concept album, and everything flows together, uh, my distaste for Kaylee sort of like bled into the other songs and I had a hard time really getting on board with this album for for a while and 
I, I, it wasn't until, you know, really just recently that I sort of figured out that it did stem from, from Kaylee and it stems from the melody in the chorus. I just don't think fish sounds good. I, I like fish, you know, angry and creative and artsy. This is like him singing like a, love song and he's you know gushing about this love love life and it just it didn't it it always sounded contrived to me and it always sounded like okay these guys needed a hit i, I didn't know the backstory at the time but it to me it sounded like okay these guys needed a hit to keep their career on, on path and so they they came up with this and i i just it's a personal thing. I know it's a, Kaylee's a big part of the Merlian lifeline. And it's just my personal thoughts on, on the song. Something about the melody just really gets me. And I, I never liked, liked the song. And um, I, I wish that I, I could have taken that element out and, and listened to it with a set of more refined ears, if you will, mm. to really get what this album was about because I, I do love this album and I, I very much love this album. And I, I but Kaylee is, is just, um, it's just a bad experience for me to, to, to listen to. And so I, I think some of my, I'm going to call it like uh, prejudices, if you will, um, about certain albums come from the fact that I loved the previous album so much and I wanted to hear more of that and I can't help getting over my sort of way of thinking but you know when we get into the fish years um, I'm going to just quick tell you a story like Sunset Sets on Empire is one of my favorite albums of all time when I heard that I was like okay this is it when Rain Gods with Zippos came out I remember buying it, listening to it, walking down Sunset Boulevard. I got three songs in, and I was just so disgusted with it. I was just like, my, I almost felt nauseous. I didn't listen to Fish for like 10 years after that. Look I, forward to that episode. Oh, wow, yeah. I, I, and I was so mad. So this is how weird I am about stuff. So obviously you guys are used to taking me with a grain of salt. So. <laughs> Um, I, that's just how weird I am about certain things. I take things probably more seriously than I should. I'm a bit more opinionated than I, I should, but that's just me. I hate, I've always hated Kaylee and, um, I wish I didn't because this is a beautiful album, but, um, I won't get into the rest of the album yet. Cause I know we're going track by track, but, Interesting. um, the, the melody for Kaylee is just not what I like to hear fish doing. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I have a different spin on this. Um, this chorus has the best gugadouge in uh, all of prog rock. So, yes. so yeah, gugadouge, Kaylee. So, um, uh, I don't know if Ian was going for epic, but in my little head, Ian is just epic on that that simple fill right there. The, the way they use that. And even though I tend to agree with you, it's a contrived pop song. I'm delighted to listen to it. I'm in. I'm. I'm, I'm in for the ride. 
makes me pretty mm-hmm. happy. And just the composition, um, you know, so how did it come to this bitter end? He's asking the question. But then later on, he says, or it'll prove that I was wrong. For me, that's the most powerful lyric of the song. He's kind of at that point admitting he's wrong. And that's what I like about it. I don't know. Paul, you? Yeah. So, I, I mean, Ken, you're touching on, you know, some magic in this song around the, the music of it. Um you know, it's sort of this B minor riff that turns into a, a D major chorus. And and the and like the the guitar line in in and in, in the um in the verses and the way the interplay with the drums and that I mean that's just fucking I mean great. And the thing that's crazy about this tune is that after the guitar solo, there's a key change. And, you know, like, it's not a static key change like a typical pop song, like a, you know, like it happens later in the, in the, in the song, like to repeat the chorus. It fucking changes key for the second verse. Mm. And uh, it's brilliant. And then it, and then it just, it statically modulates back to, to D for the chorus. And um, the guitar solo is, is great. I mean, I, I it's, it it is and while i i'm not i'm not going to defend the the poppiness and the and the hit song structure of this like there are some i mean i've shared the few things that have permeated the minds of my children right and nolan can instantly recite the the first verse of this song like he he and he jokes around he's like do you remember you know he's like <laughs> he does like the william shatner uh version of it he's like do you remember chalk hots melting on the playground wall like like he like but i mean he's only heard it in 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 the car and and like the the lyrics are so good so i i take it hook line and sinker and i will say that the very first time i listened to this and i and i had the lyrics out and I read and listened to, by the way, didn't I break your heart? Please excuse me. I never meant to break your heart. So sorry. I was like, this fucking guy writes lyrics like Ken Gregory. I was like, this is fucking awesome. Because like in, in my like I was picturing Ken's lyrics from those those tapes in high school that he used to send me. Like this, like it was so creative to me that that it just it even this in like the most quote unquote poppy sense, like it still broke through to me. Like this was so artistic and poetic. All I got for you is that when I was a kid, I did have that haircut of the kid (laughs) on the front. (laughs) So I I would like to quote from this Prague um, magazine article with regards to the genesis of, of this particular song. It was at Barwell Court that Marillion would compose that first hit. Fish remembers being in the TV room when he heard Rothery messing around with the riff that eventually became Kaylee. Quote, That riff originally came from me demonstrating to the woman that is now my wife how I wrote songs, said Rothery. Quote, I filed it away, and from such a little thing, our mortgage is now paid. So, <laughs> love it. I, I, find, I, could, you know, I could hear him saying that. Yeah, actually. can't you? 
Now, I, I will say, as he's, Paul, as he's whipping up a white Russian, yeah. right? <laughs> Paul, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned, um, so sorry, um, I never meant to break your heart. Because, and it's only recently that, as I become a crotchety old man, that this annoys me. But I've realized part of the issue that I have with this album specifically is... I don't find Fish as a romantic lead to be particularly relatable because when he finishes off that line with, but you broke mine, everything about this is like, woe is me. It's not my fault. I am so put upon. True. Shut the fuck up and get over yourself. All right. So, so I find a lot, I find a lot of this to be bleeding in my mind. Here, here. I mean, that's why I want to know what all this noise is at the end of the album. I mean, does he does he do anything constructive or is he still just woe is me? <laughs> I don't know. So let's let's move into lavender because I think that's that's a, a beautiful little way. And, and we've already mm. talked a little bit about the uh, the piano there. So Paul and Ken, you had mentioned Ian with the with the fill into the chorus. I find the little fill, the little drum fill into the chorus in Lavender to be as wonderful and noteworthy um, because it, it, it's one of those things where I've listened to this album for years and it was like only in the last week I was like, wait, what just happened there? Mm. And I go back and I'm listening to Ian and I'm like, well, that's kind of lovely. It's true. And it's a little, I mean, obviously understated based on, you know, what you just said. I mean, I, I don't know that I ever really thought about it before. It's kind of took it for granted. It is delightful. It it is. You know, like like everything I feel about this song can be stated in when I heard the sprinklers whisper shimmer in the haze of summer lawns. That's beautiful. Done. Right? Done. Mm. And to marry that up with like a nursery rhyme chorus is amazing. Yeah. And, and it yeah. still works, right? Yeah. And and, and you know, if if Kaylee is is him bleeding about, you know, the love lost, it's it's that that simple, the, the the simple joy and pleasure that's expressed on the opposite side of that coin in lavender, is is mm. it's a beautiful juxtaposition to me. Yeah, it's gorgeous. My only complaint being that lavender is the victory lap to Kaylee. <laughs> <laughs> but in 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 true you know they didn't they didn't undo all of the prog tropes right so much like you know when you've got yes trying to find a single out of relayer and they slice out soon um you know they <laughs> they they chopped lavender out pulled it out a little bit and oh there's a single even though by yep. all rights it should not be you know its own it should right. never be taken out of context in any way, right. shape, or form. Very good parallel with soon. Thank you. Well, they, they did that with Punch and Judy. Um, the, the, they had a, a sliced down version that I think worked pretty well. Is that what you were talking about? Just slicing down the song? Are, are, are you talking about the Lavender radio version as yeah. opposed uh -huh. to the album version? Okay. And, and then we move into to Bittersweet. You know, even mm. just the, the title you know, sweet with the S-U-I-T-E, you know, just, uh, you know, very clever. Um, we know I normally don't like clever, but in this particular case, I do like, I like this clever. 
and I mean, so again, if I if I take myself back to to twenty year old me sitting in my dorm room alone listening to this, maybe I was nineteen, very close to twenty. A spider wanders aimlessly within the warmth of a shadow, not the regal creature of border caves, but the poor, misguided, directionless familiar of some obscure Scottish poet. I don't know what the fuck just happened, but I think I need to change my pants. What was that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, I, I, there was nothing in my life at that point that could have prepared me for, for that particular moment, right? But it's just like, I don't know what's going on, but I love it. I'm so happy. And it just kept oh, getting better. It It is. F I mean, not that a eagle creature of border caves. <laughs> like, they're just, there's just, ah, I mean, the mist crawls from the canal, like some primordial phantom of romance. And then like, you know, the, like the coolest part about that is like, as he's reading that he's, he reads, he reads like the words, while I sit, he reads them in rhythm. Yeah. To the to the to the hi hat. I mean, it's it's just brilliant. There are moments in Fish's solo career where he does stuff like that. He does that on the new album, and he does that in some. Speaking of rain gods with zippos, um, he does that. Uh, he does some really great stuff on there, and. It's sort of it never gets old with me. <laughs> I can't yeah. like it's not like um it's not a gimmick to me. Like every time he does it, it's over a really cool piece of music and it's just it just feels right. And and this is sort of where it all began really, um with on on, on this album. And it's just it just feels good going down. Yeah. And and you know, like Ken was talking about some of the progressive rock stuff that was going going on, and 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 I think we mentioned this before. While progressive rock, like the the classic progressive rock, was starting to, you know, go towards more of a, a commercial sound and and a smaller, less less of this kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And and we were being bombarded with popular music that you know featured careless whispers by george michael um <laughs> and and wham and wake me up before you go go and like a virgin and and like and 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 good stuff like take on me by aha and and out of touch by hollow notes and everybody wants to rule by like that was cool stuff but nothing nothing was even close to this sort of bed of ethereal music with the the hi-hats and like poetry being recited and i wasn't hearing anything like this no um yeah i mean this is just great stuff mm. god and you know as, as you move through this right when when um when they bring back the the lavender theme oh Fucking love it. Leading mm. into uh, the sky was Bible black and Leon as I met the Magdalene. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, it was one of those things where I was I, I was I was driven to to look up where Leon actually is and, and was very thrilled to, you know, learn a little bit of something about the geography of France. And uh, I just I, I think it's. 
It's absolutely wonderful. That that whole that whole section. I think all yeah. of bittersweet. I think is is really good. Uh, until um, well, you said lavender theme. So so when I hear lavender theme, I'm thinking people get ready. It was from 1965, and the month after this album came out, Jeff Beck covered it. So <laughs> nice. People get ready. People get ready. People get. Ready. I mean, I mean, I I love Rothery. I love Merlion. I love this album. I'm in heaven. It's just that that melody evokes that song, and there's nothing that I can do to change it. Interesting. That is interesting. It's like that once that other song, right? The summer of '69 that you heard in Genesis, right? That's crazy. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yep. So I mean, you know, and 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 I guess you know when you talk about the 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 lyrical narrative, right? Guy breaks up with his girlfriend. He's really heartbroken, and he starts to, you know, make a, a long series of questionable decisions. Cool, get it. I'm on board. Um, totally, totally get it. And, and and you know, getting through bittersweet is is really really easy. But the the first sort of record scratch moment that I get is with Heart of Lothian, simply because all of the sudden, and if if any of our listeners, you know, understand this better than I, like I had to go do some research. Like, what what is Heart of Lothian? Well, Midlothian apparently is the mm -hmm. is a region in Scotland, um, you know, and and okay, that makes perfect sense. But and and my guess is, in terms of the narrative, he's trying to, you know, if bittersweet is about you know, seeking solace in, in prostitutes and, and whatnot. Um, Heart of Lothian then presumably is seeking solace in drinking because that's what good Scottish boys do, I guess. I don't know. Hmm. Um, <laughs> but it, it it comes across, and it's, it's funny, in that prog article, there's actually a section on Hogarth's re relation to these songs. And he specifically mentions the fact that, you know, they generally don't play Heart of Lothian because, as he points out, he is clearly not Scottish. And so, he, you know, Hogarth feels a certain amount of discomfort in singing that. So what I find is, you know, it, it comes across to me as more of a, a nationalist anthem for Scotland as opposed to part of the narrative. And I'm just like, wait, why am I singing about Scotland all of a sudden? You know, huh. and so so that is this is the first place where, you know, I kind of, you know, my groove gets thrown off a little bit. Well, I mean, so, he's having relationship problems and his answer is jingoistic drinking. Isn't that oh where, my God. where we've arrived? Okay. So I'm going to take I'm going <laughs> to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, a stab at this a little bit. So. I, I mean, listen, w w everyone, anyone who's listened knows that that I'm often very wrong about my interpretation of lyrics but so i always took some of of you know the the bittersweet as in, in in the past right and maybe it's just because it was you know i'm looking at this entire um i'm looking almost at this entire thing as kind of being like a retrospective right mm -hmm. he's he's you know He's sitting there and he's delivering a retrospective about about his life. 
So one of the funny things is like, I always thought like he may have been, uh, he may have been actually recounting, you know, this meeting of the Magdalene was actually one of the things that contributed to his breakup, not what he did after his breakup. Um, because he was on the road and he was, he was uh, doing whatever. And, you know, and, and, you know, while this, you know, I, I would suggest that it, you know, this kind of activity would be a symptom of, of whatever is wrong with him. Right. And, 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 and so that, that's why it's so powerful to me. Like the idea is like, he's, he's sort of projecting all of his own emotions onto um, this prostitute and you know that's why she's saying i can hear your heart and all, and all of that right and he's he's getting all of this for me right when when he goes you know uh uh it's getting late for scribbling and scratching on the paper yada yada and goes on and he says it's time for another misplaced rendezvous with you the parallel of you um He's really like to me. He's kind of recounting, like re recanting history of him, you know, taking part in jingoistic drinking with his <laughs> with his wide boy buddies, right? Yeah. And and so to me, it it's it's not so much like all of a sudden we're you know we're going back singing about Scotland. He's singing about his his youth. He's singing about part of the part of what's made him this sort of this sort of flawed character. And, you know, I had to do so much research on this, you know, just to understand what the, the term wide boys meant. And, and so when I like, for, for, for me, this is just him recanting all of that experience. And I, these may be my favorite lyrics of the entire record right here. It's six o'clock in the tower blocks, stalagmites of culture shock. And the trippers of the light fantastic bow down, hoe down, spray their pheromones on this perfume uniform. And this, and anarchy smiles in the royal mile. And we're waiting on the sly boys, fly boys, wide boys, rootin' tootin' cowboys. <laughs> Lucky little ladies at the water in holes. They'll score the Friday night goals. I was born with the heart of the Lothian. That to me is like the 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 core of of like the flaw right because wide boys are basically swindlers they're like the han solo from episode four right you kind of like them but you kind of don't trust them and then you realize later on he's just a dirty scoundrel but but that and that's that's fish right and you know he grew up you know partying on the royal mile and scoring the friday night goals and and he, he it's almost like he goes on the road and he can't get away from that and he can't you know he can't get himself into a place where he can um i don't know be an adult i'm not sure but i just love this is this is like the climax of side one this this whole part so i'm i'm loving it i i i, I absolutely love that you put that much effort into and and i'm i support that reading i don't know that it it absolves our our protagonist, if that's the right word, of any of the sins that I hold against him. But you know, 
isn't he acknowledging his sins? And the man from the magazine wants another shot of you all curled up because you look like an actor in a movie shot, but you're feeling like a wino in a parking lot. How did I get here anyway? Do we really need a playback of the show? Because the wide boy wants to head for the watering hole. Let's go. Mm. I mean, I mean, I love the wino in the parking lot line. Does that not hit you a little bit every time you hear this? And, and it's funny, you know, you guys are gushing over these lyrics. This is the this is the the song that probably lyrically does the least for me. It just mm. just not into it. So, Stalagmites of culture shock, Joe. Now, now Stalagmites <laughs> is is spectacular. I, I love the uh, I love the emphasis there on the different syllables. <laughs> Talking about lyrics, um, and th- there I, I have a confession to make. For for years, uh, I thought that Fish was singing. I was born with the heart that loves you. And I always thought that was the most amazing line. Wow. I I was born with the heart that loves you. And when I found out that it was, that wasn't it, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to use this for one of my songs. (laughs) 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 I was like, oh, it just got me. Cause the way he sings it, if you, it just, it was like really emotional. And, um, for years, you would have thought that I would have looked at the title of the song and sort of figured it out. But um, I, I think that uh, there, there are a couple, and I did, uh, speaking of the song, I, I thought he was saying white boys. <laughs> oh, white. yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I specifically remember listening and, and having to dig out the, the, the card to, to view that to see if, what, what is he saying there? That, does, that doesn't seem right. Right. Oh yeah, the song has no place on any kind of mainstream radio because anyone hearing that is just gonna be like, "What the hell?" I I just have to go back to another like a, a, another moment lyrically that you know always takes me to the the youthful Ken Gregory. Um, I I can Ken. I don't know what it is about like this particular record and the lyrics and how I connect to to some of your perhaps early writing, but here's another one that crushes me even to this day when i hear it i think about you on the outskirts of nowhere on the ring road to somewhere on the verge of indecision i'll always take the roundabout way i mean am i wrong about that guys no I mean, that's I think that's spectacular that's classic and, and that, that is like that's that's just fish flexing on everybody so paul were you saying that because it reminded you of ken right it reminds me of ken well see yeah. this is the thing and ken we talked about this on the first album uh, on, on script, you weren't there, but all of us were like, we, we didn't, we were surprised that you didn't favor that album as much as you do, because all of us sort of see fish in, 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 in your writing. Like it's not, and it's, and it's, believe me, it's a, it's a good thing. Like I, and uh, I, I really hear, your voice, but also some of the writing, some of your lyric writing and melodies. And so I was just surprised that you weren't sort of on board as much with the earlier stuff, because I hear, I hear your, your stuff in a lot of these songs and not so much on, on this per se, but a a lot of the, even, you know, the, 
first two albums. So, and we actually have a little bit of a discussion on, about it on the um, on the script episode. So I don't. It's I, I find it I find it um, interesting. You know, I would have been channeling Foxtrot. I, w- I would have been channeling early Peter Gabriel. I didn't have any access to this. I think I Fish was too. Maybe that's what you guys had in yeah, common. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, primarily Foxtrot, but, you know, the whole collection. So if we flip the album over, and, uh, I mean, Waterhole just... <laughs> it's, it's like they they just go crazy at that point. Um <laughs> The only note I have about Waterhole, and, and you know, again, I enjoy all of this. It just doesn't maybe excite me as much as as the beginning of the album. But and Tom, you brought up Sunsets uh, on Empire, right? So he he, there's a line in here where he uses the word tattoo, and oh, he's, yeah. he the cadence of the way he says tattoo is exactly the same as he would use many years later in Brother Fifty Two. <laughs> and it just, it cracks me up that it's so similar. I was like, holy crap. He does that um, on the, I forget what the word is, but there's something on the new album he says that brings me back to an earlier thing. But yeah, he does, he occasionally, he has, he pronounces things so distinctly and sort of makes his indelible mark on a word or phrase that, you know, he can never use it again because you always are like, okay, that you go back. But he does, and it's still good. But, you know, you definitely, you, you can definitely attach it to that. So that's funny. And and by all accounts, uh, and, and if, if anyone has, has seen or read differently, I, you know, please tell me. And, uh, you know, apparently Fish enjoyed, you know, certain substances, but I haven't seen anything to suggest that he was big into using cocaine. However, references to cocaine are always making appearances in his lyrics. So when we have it, it's funny because there's there are two back to back here, both Waterhole and Lords of the Backstage have what appear to be very overt cocaine references. They're turning down their noses to the best lines and the cheap wines. Best lines, it, best lines either is a, a, a reference to pickup lines or it could be lines of, of cocaine. Hmm. Um, not 100% certain there. Nah. I never even suspected it could have been a, a reference to cocaine. Well, and, and I bring it but, up because, but turn- I mean, and again, I, yeah. I want to say there, there, were, there were cocaine references in Fugazi, I think. I don't remember exactly. Um, yeah. But in Lord of the Backstage, he, ta- he sings about uh, the mirror cracked along the white lines. So, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it, it shows up repeatedly. It definitely works better that way. I like that. I like that because that's my favorite line in the song. They're turning down their noses to the best lines and the cheap wines. Like the way he says the same thing. <laughs> like you could never hear fish say cheap wines again. And the white boys. They wear their love bites for the crimes. The uh, yeah, it makes it makes a lot. It makes a lot better sense to me. This has always been just like the perfect. This is like the needle lies on Operation Mindcrime for me, right? It's like, it's kind of a throwaway song, 
it actually does move the story, uh, you know, ahead a little bit. Um, and it's just kind of fun after the emotional experience that I just had, you know, uh, on side one to kind of just kind of get me back into uh, into the groove here. But this is this is, you know, the morning after the the romp through the Royal Mile, and uh, you know, the hero never shows. Yeah, because they're empty, hollow, wide boys. Is there any better transition in all of neo progressive rock, if that is even something I can say? Then the Lord of the backstage getting into the, the, the Lords of the backstage. Is there, there are so many great transitions on here. It's so funny. You almost get desensitized from the fact that everything flows so beautifully into one another. There, there are times where I'm, I'm guilty of not listening to things like that because everything is just like silk. Uh, pardon me. Fun. but um uh, it it is it is it is a great transition is that is that what you were talking yeah. about Paul? yeah yeah and, and and we called out marillion on this the first time we went through the catalog right because when you get into brave and even even fear and, and things like that and and other groups as well i mean they but but certainly marillion they they seem to spend less time creating these transitions right Yes, I I, I would time. agree with that, and yeah. and they have a real static transition from Lords of the Backstage to the next song, and but it's like it's like the first one, the whole record, yeah. you know. So you're like, fine, I'll give them that one, no problem. <laughs> 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 the only problem for me with Lords of the Backstage is it's only like a minute and like thirty five seconds long, like. I want to re do a remake of this song and I want to make it into like a five minute, five minute hit song with like solos and stuff, totally unnecessary stuff, just so I can hear the seven, eight riff over and over again for like five minutes. <laughs> but Paul, if you did that, you'd probably still buy the, um, the, the, um, oh boy, the radio version of uh, marbles type of thing. <laughs> 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 so can we move on to blind curve if you tell me what the hell it is I, you know does it i'll tell you what it is it is and and it's funny because i was i was recently you know as i've been editing the the episodes on the wall that we did and can you make the point on on one of them that you know, after Run Like Hell, you're done. You don't need oh, it yeah. anymore. You don't need the trial um, and whatever else comes in between there. That's how I feel with this. Blind Good. Curve is is the, 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 the uh, climax of the album for me. Absolutely fucking love it. Um, last night you said I was cold, untouchable. This is when we get that sort of that vulnerable look at at fish where we've we've done away with all of the the bullshit and all of the excuses and everything else and we're left with what's really going on here and and it ends up with the, the twinkling lies those twinkling lies sparkle with the wet ink mm. on the paper and then fucking rothery comes in and i gotta change my pants again <laughs> 
And it's just like, Christ. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, Joe. I, I agree that um, Blind Curve does feel like it would be like the last song on the album. I feel the same way, but then I'm so glad it's not because I'm not ready. Like, I feel I would love to just have a, a double album, you know, kind of like what Paul said, but the whole thing, I want to I hear the whole album, you know, twice with like more of everything. Um, so I, I'm very happy when childhoods and, and white feather come in, but in the, in my, the back of my head, I'm thinking like this, this is sort of like the climax of the album here. And then it, th this feels like it should, it should end. But, but and, and, and it does at the same time though, it, it still suffers from some of the problems, right? Like, you know, here Milo, a beautiful section of music, but why the fuck are we talking about Milo now? Like, mm. you know, there, there's been no mention of Milo, and Who is it's Milo? very sad that that Milo's not here anymore. But I'm not 100 percent certain why. I, I, I I've got no reason to be invested in Milo's absence, right? Right. You have a point. Yeah. I mean, is Milo the cat? That the pet cat? What? Um. <laughs> that's a legitimate question we, we have we've, we've gotten we have no reference point for milo so who who is milo we're just laughing at the look on joe's face <laughs> <laughs> i just you said that i wasn't expecting a cat story i'm like did i miss something in my research i, I mean you know like you know on on first blush when i when i listened to this it felt like you know we sat on the phone and we cried. He was the, I never felt so alone. He was the first of our own. It sounds like, you know, this was their, their child. Right. And, and I thought, wow, that's, that's just awful. Right. But, but there's no reference point to that going forward. So is, is that what we all just take that to be? See, I always took it as he was the first of our own being the first of their group of friends who, you know, either yes. drank himself to death or something like that. And it's like, oh, fuck, this isn't a game anymore. Mm. Right. Okay, good. Okay. So that's kind of that's kind of where I evolved to it as well. I said, okay, well, it can't be their kid. Right. So it must be that, that type of yeah. that type of situation. And again, it's 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 a minor point because I, I it is a beautiful piece of music and I, I I happily sing through it and I just purposefully don't think about it but if i have to sit down and think about it it makes absolutely no sense and i don't know why i should care but I, honestly that's my problem with the rest of this album because childhood childhood's end is okay i can maybe get on board but white feather i'm just like what 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 the fuck <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you all right. Well, I, we're getting ahead of ourselves we, a little bit, but um, but I'm okay with it. I'm okay with jumping ahead. You know, this for me, this is where the whole narrative structure sort of falls apart. And it, it, at childhood end, it, well, no, actually, it starts to. My my note says it it starts to occur at Lords of the Backstage, which is where things start to go kind of wonky. And you know, Blind Curve kind of brings it back a little bit. Until you, you know, but again, it, it still has these incongruities and the, the ultimate conclusion here to me just doesn't make any sense. And I'm sure, and I hope, I absolutely hope 
that one or more of our listeners have a better perspective on this and can, you know, can illuminate me as to, you know, what the hell's going on here. But it just, huh. it just doesn't work for me. Lyrically. Wow. Musically, I love it. I, I'm, I'm very happy to listen to it. And like you, Tom, I mean, this is, this album is 41 minutes long and it is a blistering fast 41 minutes. Um, it, it, it feels much less than that. So if it was even shorter, I would be actively sad. I think I agree with you. Um, so yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and it's possible that I'm victim of just trying too hard to make this work in my (laughs) head, but you know, like, you know, to me, like, you know, we get to blind curve and like, this is the moment of, um, you know, he's, he's, he's recalling, you know, the, the ending of the relationship. Right. And, and his idea that he could just be, he's better off alone and, and all of that, that stuff. And then it gets to, you know, the, the point that you said, but when we get to Milo, like to me, he's sort of, he's sort of like the, this is the last time that they spoke, right? It was, it was after they broke up Milo passed and they talked and then he, basically takes himself and and takes the sleeping pills and and goes into casual obscenity and that sort of is where like the the story kind of stops like his his memory of everything sort of stops yeah and he like catches up to wherever he is right now on his on his trip you know and when he starts going through the idea of you know he feels his childhood and his childhood wants, you know, he wants to, to get it back. And this, this is, this is kind of like the redemption part of, of the bit. And I, and I'll, after, after all of that, I'll say that the song, the par section threshold, which I don't even know that I knew it was called that until just now. It never one of really my, my favorite, favorite parts, right? Like, Cause that's when he kind of goes back, Tom, to like all of the other problems in the world, right? Um, and how, however, it's all playing a part in his life. He's starting to talk about all all of the other things, and um, and you know, almost like you know, he's sick of himself, and then he he turns to the outside world, and he's sick of the outside world, and 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 what does he have from there, and um. And then it's almost like then he wakes up from his stupor and he's almost cleansed and and he sort of sees sees the world for the way it could have been. I have no explanation for White Feather, just for the mm. record, before we get there. <laughs> I suppose I agree with you, Paul. The redemption for me, though, is the recap of Heart of Lothian at the end of um, Blind Curve. Is is there any reason yeah. to believe the redemption is genuine and lasting? Not if you've ever listened to Clutching at Straws. Enough <laughs> <laughs> said. Enough said. But but I will I will say musically I, I I totally agree with you. Can for me the the, the basically the recapitulation of the Heart of Lothian theme ends the album for me. And I always thought of Childhood End and White Feather as like extra fodder, right? And and um, but I this past go around, 
I've really warmed up to Childhood Den. Maybe I said that on our original episode. I don't think we spent anywhere near this much time on it. But I really warmed up to it both lyrically, but really musically. Like it is such the seed of of the of of really so much that's on clutching at straws and so much that is even on in season's end, I think. I I just I really warmed up to Childhood End. Oh, okay, okay. The music in Childhood End is a good segue to something like Seasons End. I Mm. will buy that for a (laughs) dollar. I I just don't want this guy screaming while all this good music is happening. (laughs) This really could be redemption if he wasn't. I mean, he's still still having his acid trip, as far as I'm concerned. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. The music is beautiful, though. The question mark doesn't need to be there. Possible wall throwback, red flag. Burp, 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 burp. <laughs> you know, it might be, uh, it, it might be an interesting exercise to listen to this album and switch out. I know lyrically it would make too much sense, but if you switched out. Blind curve, if you, uh, blind curve with um, childhood's end and white feather. Blind, blind curve is the is the big one, right? That ends with the mm-hmm. yeah thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That should go last, and then childhood's end and white feather should stay in the order it's in, but it should slide up before, hmm. like, to right after Lords of the Backstage. Huh. And I don't lyrically it would be a you know it would be sacrilegious, but it would be interesting to hear those songs in that order because that's the way it sort of musically is, is I feel almost meant to go. Hmm. Without moving childhoods and it, 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 it's happy and it gets faster and wilder as it goes. And now I'm thinking of it at the end of lamb lies down. Yeah. Um, Kind of like, Let's play something fast so they have enough energy to get out of their chairs. And that uh, pretty much brings us to the end. Uh, like I said, I, I got nothing to say about White Feather. So. Well, White Feather is very Scottish. It's got a March theme to it. It's got the Tom Toms. And it fits in with the jingoistic drinking. I'm going to I just go back. I forgot to sort of call out H for for his like what I consider frankly BS <laughs> that he can't sing Heart of Lothian because he's not Scottish I say that's BS <laughs> well you know what's funny about this album <clears throat> um, I guess Fish wanted to do around the, the, the 30 year anniversary Fish did this album and I guess they were talking, Fish and Marillion were actually in some sort of talks about doing um, a live show of this album. And it fell through because Fish wanted to do it in a different key, a lower key, um, a note, um, it was a half note or a whole note, whatever, uh, lower. And Steve Rothery said, no way, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, R- Rothery apparently refuses to transpose songs. Right, right. And Fish was like, well, you know, what's the big deal, you know? 
I it's if you if you just do it. So anyway, they had a back and forth about it. Um, but I I I find it interesting because everyone sort of has their sort of issue. You know, H has his issue and Fish has an issue about the key. Rothery has an issue about the key. And you know, it, it's sort of how I don't know. It, this that's what's fun with about what we're doing because we find yeah. little, little, little things about the albums that we love and wow. And, know, and 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 I'd like to put a pin in that and and go back quickly. And I I, I pulled up Rothery's or I'm sorry Hogarth's quote. So mm-hmm. so we can we can let Steve speak for himself and then we can okay. judge if we've been fair or not. Quote. Heart of Lothian is a bit weird because I'm plainly not from Edinburgh, but I enjoy singing it. We don't do it that often, but we do when we're north of the border as a mark of respect. So when it comes to these songs, my attitude is, if it's honest enough and true enough, and not too gothic or angry or drug-addled, then I can get into it. And I can even get into it if it's drug-addled, as long as I have the same drugs. (laughs) All right, fair enough. I take I take back my BS claim. Now the, that's a, that's a lot different. Yeah, yeah, and and so my apologies for for misrepresenting H um, on that, and I'm glad I I pulled up that quote because it it he does clearly come across differently. Now the other interesting thing, I, as I was preparing for this, and I I had kind of done what I would normally do, I pulled up a YouTube video of a Stephen Rothery performance of Misplaced Childhood. And wow. I had absolutely no reason to listen to all of it because it was extraordinarily straightforward in terms of its presentation. Um, there just wasn't anything fundamentally different about it. So the question that I have for the group is, did anyone pull up and watch a video of Fish performing this several years ago? And knowing that he wanted to transpose the songs down, does it come across any different or not? Hmm. Uh, the answer I, to that question not. for me is no, and I don't know. Maybe we can um, put a pin in that till next week. I, I, I wonder if that's on my Blu-ray version of my uh, Veltsmerch, uh special order. If there's any of that in there, I'll check it out. Yeah, I don't know. I just I thought it was interesting to see, you know, if if he does anything different in his interpretation, you know, much like mm-hmm. we talked about with with Waters and Gilmore, how they have yeah. different different interpretations of the same source material. Was Gabrielle Agudo the singer in that performance? Do you know? I don't or G- Gabriel Agudo, sorry. I, I don't know. It was some heavy set dude with a crew cut. Um, doesn't sound like him. One of the things about this album that I think what makes it persist in my brain is is so, sort of what you just said. O- almost from the first summer that you introduced this CD to me, Joe, to this very day, whenever I listen to it, I actually fantasize about putting on a stage production of Misplaced Childhood. Really? Yeah. And... Tom would, of course, be the protagonist. He, Tom, you would be cast as in the lead role, um, <laughs> because I think you have the the perfect uh, fish esque voice, um, and I mean that in the greatest way possible. And um, 
and I'm sorry, we won't be changing the key for you. So <laughs> you stay in shape. But it, but you know, in all seriousness, I I even even listening to it over these past couple of weeks, you know, getting ready, like I still have visions in my mind of what what I would want that to be and what I would what I would want to have happen. And I I think that the 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 artistry of the of the lyrics and the the passion of the delivery but just the insane um attention to all the musical details in this in this record just as a as a expression a musical expression it's it's incredibly inspiring all these years later to me it it really is so paul we have th we have Misplaced Childhood for a musical adaptation. And then we have Operation Mime Crime as a uh, miniseries, a cable yeah. miniseries. We need oh, to that pitch that to HBO, man. I'm telling yeah. you. We Gosh. should have a production company and we should just revamp all these, you know, prog stories and just, you know, make them into, um, you know, different, different versions. Different, yeah. Progressive Palaver Presents. Right. Yeah. Add it to the list of, of items on the on the docket for us to accomplish. <laughs> How many years ago did we decide to open up the uh, the, the restaurant? <laughs> oh my gosh! I'm I still I still have to record videos for uh for the that that base part that I did what it's July Fourth now I think or Memorial Day I think when we first did that partly palaver yeah. way behind outstanding but you know and and yeah you know whatever whatever shortcomings or foibles this record has it's it's still spectacular it, it really is and and again it, it i i think it sounds like you know it was all of our gateways this is how we got here in into this band and all these years later here we are so you know it it's it 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 will always hold, obviously, a very, very special place in my heart. And, you know, as as an adult, I have come to appreciate Clutching at Straws maybe more on an absolute quantifiable scale, but it that does that's not meant to diminish the the beauty or import of this record at all. Yes, I feel very grateful that I was able to um come to you on this on this album. I just sort of um, I'm 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 glad I was able to hear in the way it was was meant to be heard, and um, I'm very very happy with this album. Outstanding! So that will close out misplaced childhood. Next episode, we will go into the aforementioned clutching at straws, and then we'll finish out our fishmar with the um tacked on besides themselves and actually there's a funny a somewhat funny story around lady nina from this recording that we'll we'll recount maybe at that time so gentlemen thank you as always for your time here this evening i think um you know we uh we did this properly uh, given where we started out this evening so i appreciate everyone's uh sort of fortitude in, in getting through and very much look forward to um, discussing some downer material 
um, in terms of, of narrative structure next episode. Although, again, I absolutely love it. So, thanks, guys. Cheers. enjoyed this conversation on misplaced childhood as always we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and we look forward to your thoughts comments feedback and questions you can reach us on instagram facebook or twitter we are at Prague Pala on all of those or search for progressive palaver you're welcome to email us our email address is Prague Pala that's p-r-o-g-p-a-l-a at gmail.com Progressive Palaver is available presumably wherever you find your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, a host of other platforms, and we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.